So the, the Incognito series is this discussion of what the event that takes place on the road to Emmaus. And the road to Emmaus is an incident that occurs right back, as many of us have been aware for the last two weeks. We've been sharing on this in Luke 24. And instead of necessarily going back and resetting everything, I'm just going to read through the passage. Uh, this passage is, not, is the one that precedes the one in your handout. So you're more than welcome to follow along if you have your Bible, your Bible app. But we're going to scroll it as well so that everybody can kind of connect to what we're reading. We're going to reset the table. And then we have some things to share around. We're going to talk about how Jesus wants to connect with us in a very d d deep way. So let's read Luke 24, verse 13. I'll start. It says, that very day, it was Easter Sunday, by the way, that day that's being referred to there as Easter Sunday. That very day, that Easter Sunday, two of them, the two of them would have been followers of Jesus. They were not part of his primary, one of them we're going to find out his name is Cleopas. These are not two of the 12. These are part of an extended group of people who had followed Jesus, believed in Jesus. In many ways, they had thrown everything they had behind him in the conviction that he was Messiah, the Savior, the promised one. And for them, the cross meant ultimate failure, devastation. It meant the brokenness of their dream. Not only did they lose Jesus, who had been in many ways the most important person in their lives when he died on the cross, and it wasn't just a normal death. It was an awful death. It was devastating. We talked about this, how ugly it was, how violent, how emphatically disfigured Jesus was by the time the Romans were done with him. And what a shock that would have been to anyone who cared for him. It wasn't just something that you could get past in only a few days. They were still grieving the loss of Jesus and recovering from the trauma that they had experienced. Some of us know there are certain traumas in life that take months, sometimes years, to really heal up from, if we ever do. In this case, they're traumatized by what has happened to Jesus. It says they were going to a village, look at that, named Emmaus. That village was about mm, seven miles from Jerusalem. And again, I invited us to sort of remind ourselves, I love the imagery that they had come up with for the series, this incognito series, Jesus in Disguise. But the idea of a pathway leading from Jerusalem to a more remote town called Emmaus, seven miles away, and how that path would have been somewhat isolated, like the one we've sort of come up and created in our mind's eye. And how these two are friends. They have been followers of Jesus, but now they're devastated. And they're walking together, and they're talking, and they're sharing and they're trying to figure things out. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So there's this, all of a sudden, a fellow traveler on the road. They didn't see where he even came from, but all of a sudden, he's walking with them, and the next thing you know, he's joining with them. And it, 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 it's like, why? you know, Notice what happens next. He said, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? So the stranger who they didn't know, who joined them on the road, and they can't remember exactly. He must have been going faster than them, but he shows up. He's walking down the same path. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? You seem pretty intense. And notice what it says. They stood still. They stopped as the, man, as the stranger inserted himself into their conversation. And they looked sad. And they were sad. They were discouraged, defeated very hurt and went with and it says here that they they were sad and then one of them there's the name cleopas answered him are you the only visitor to jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days come on and he said i love it what things 
And they said to him, you know, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him. They delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped. We had hoped. We had believed. We had believed that he was the one to redeem Israel, the Savior, the promised one. And after, besides all this, it's been about, what, three days. This is the third day since these, these things happened. Now, it's true. There have been some women who were part of our group, our company, and they amazed us. They came up with this story. They said that they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who, they, who said he was alive. But some of those who were with us, we went to the tomb to check it out, and we found it was, it was just as they said, the body of Jesus is gone, but no, nobody saw him. It wasn't like he's alive. That was the last thing on their mind, the idea that Jesus was alive. You gotta understand, for the cross, for the disciples of Jesus, it just meant the end. That was their mentality. It was defeat. There's no sense of, oh, he might be alive, or he talked about, no. It is, that thing ended. Whatever it was, it's over. Whoever he was, and he was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was the most beautiful man we've ever known. But he wasn't who he said he was. We believed him to be Messiah, and that he clearly wasn't. Now, that sets us up for where we are right here. In our handout, we're going to look at verse 25. It says, he said to them, this stranger who seemed to know them, who they did not recognize, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Come on, you know the scriptures. You know what the prophets have taught us. You know what the writings of the scriptures say. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, should suffer these things before he enters into glory? And then notice, notice what he says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that would include the Psalms as well, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a marvelous conversation. Ah, oh, that must have been an, an impromptu Bible study like no other. It would have been amazing, right? Here they are. They're walking. And as they're walking, the stranger is talking. And as he's talking and they're walking together, he's telling them all the things in the scripture that foreshadowed the coming of Messiah and why he had to suffer and die. He takes them on a journey, a journey all the way back to the very beginning, the very book of Genesis itself, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those books, Jesus points back to them. Because remember this, the scriptures that Jesus is referring to, when we have a Bible, our Bible is made up of a New Testament, right? It goes from the life of Christ on, and an Older Testament, that has to do with how the beginning occurs in Genesis and moves all the way through God calling out a man named Abraham, forming ultimately a nation. Out of that nation comes the promise of Messiah. It's all pointing towards Jesus. It's filled with other things like sacrifices that foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice of God himself. The blood that was spilled even at the very beginning to cover the shame of the first human family in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. The scarlet thread that scholars say runs throughout the entire Bible from the Old Testament into the very point where there's a Passover lamb as they are broken out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land all the way through to the promise of Messiah. Jesus is unraveling those things as they're walking and saying, look, the scriptures foretold of a savior who would suffer before the glory, first the thorns, then the glory. Come on, you should know your own scriptures. You're familiar with them. You are slow to believe, come on, can't you see it? And it says, and by the way, later on they'll say, oh my goodness, 
as he talked, our hearts got, like, they started burning. It was so, here's the thing. This is another reason why, by the way, it's important to study the scriptures. Anybody who, okay, anybody who is serious about following Jesus needs to take seriously the study and reading of his words, and including, and I include the Older Testament, because that's what Jesus was actually using as a guidepost right there in this Road to Emmaus incident. Think about that. The value in understanding what we call the Older Testament. It, it, it almost, in a way, it points to Jesus just as everything in the New Testament points back to Jesus. It all centers on a cross and a risen Savior. Now, in my mind, what we're doing right now is huge. Coming together in a larger gathering to hear his words. This was, I hope we understand, the custom of Jesus himself. Those who would follow Jesus follow in his path. It says in, that he, in, if you read Luke 4, 16, it says that as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue. Jesus went to church on the seventh day. One a week, he was in the Lord's house where the scriptures were read. That was a custom of Jesus, a way in which he built the rhythm. If he, he was the Lord of glory, and he had a rhythm of coming to the Lord's house. And then if you also re, you realize that that's a place where we hear God's word, where the Lord can speak to us, also you'll see the value of small group. If the custom of Jesus was to go to the Lord's house and hear the word and read the word and share it in commentary, then the method of Jesus was small group. And he had built his team into a small, in a, into a small group. And that's where they shared life, they shared scripture, they talked, they engaged it in that environment. And then if you notice, Jesus also had a practice of getting away on his own to spend time with the Father, which is a reminder that if, okay, I'm, I'm giving us the gold standard of the Christian life. One day a week in community with other followers hearing his words. Another time of having small group engagement where there's fellowship and we can be known, where we're discussing and reasoning and praying together, worshiping together. And then, of course, supplemented by a dailiness, like a daily vitamin, if you will, at a spiritual level of time engaged devotionally or with his word, where I'm reading his words, thinking about them, learning to let them settle into my heart. That if I can do this, it's like a training regimen that will produce health in life. It's a fantastic rhythm and way of moving. Now, let's go back to this passage, and we'll see it one more time. So, you know, oh, by the way, when he's on the road, and he's talking to them about the Older Testament, right, and he's opening up the scriptures, what is, he's pointing to something. He's leading them somewhere. He's saying, look, you should have seen it. The Messiah was supposed to suffer and die before his glory, right? In a sense, he's, he's, they're on a journey, and he's leading them to the cross, if you will. He's leading them to the cross. The very thing that they saw as defeat, he's saying that was what was supposed to be, right? And, there are, and they listen, no doubt, in utter amazement. Now, I put in your hand out there, um, you can see this. There's a, a quotation from a, 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 man, a commentator named G. Campbell Morgan, who I just love. And, and I love the way he renders it. It's kind of poetic. He says, look, he says, he, Jesus, was taking their own prophets. Look at this. You can see it there. And unlocking them. I love the way he describes it. Flinging back the shutters and letting the light stream in. He talked to them and they were silent. And there broke upon them a new vision of truth, a new understanding of things with which they were perfectly familiar. And in this new vision, they found new understanding of all things which they had long known. And so I want us to see this. And I asked if they could just put this up. 
But new understanding, listen, is a powerful dynamic, particularly when something familiar is revealed to be so much more than what we thought it was. This, notice the word, the idea of familiar. Jesus took something familiar to them, the scriptures, and opened them up in a fresh new way. And it was almost like they came alive in a very different way. Familiarity. What is that? Familiarity is when, we're, when we know someone. In a relationship, when we have familiarity, we, we're, we're, we're close. We, we've, we've had a relationship for a while. We understand the other person. Familiarity may be something that we have maybe with an acquired skill set. I'm familiar with that. I know that language. I know this. I understand it. I'm familiar with it. Yes, we use the word all the time, familiarity. When we talk about familiarity in a relationship, because Jesus says he opened up things that were familiar, right? When we talk about familiarity in a relationship, we have to understand familiarity has advantages and disadvantages, doesn't it? <laughs> the familiarity advantage, I, as, I, as we think about it, has to do with things like the ease of access, or what we might call the speed of trust. We know each other. We trust each other. So there's, a, there's not a lot of pre-work that needs to be done to make sure that, that my assumption of who you are is correct, right? Because usually when we enter into a new relationship, we don't really know. We're engaging relationally to understand. But the closer you are, the more familiar we are with someone, then we, we have a higher level of trust. This is speed of trust, as it's sometimes called. So familiarity has its upsides to it. it. It's safer. It can be safe. When we're familiar with someone, there's safety there. I know you. You know me. You know my ways. I know your ways. There's, there's the ability to have a kind of comfort or a lack of pretentiousness, right? I don't have to worry about this or that because we're familiar. Just be as I am. That's, that's comfortable. There can also be a kind of um, beauty of intimacy that comes with familiarity at its highest level. There's not only a safety, there's a beauty of, of truly being vulnerable because we know each other so well. You see the advantages of familiarity, but there's also a disadvantage. What do you think that disadvantage is? The disadvantage is that we can easily start, when we're familiar with something, to take it for granted. And our interest and our appreciation, which was once special, can start to wane. As the more familiar we become, the more ordinary it seems to be. And I take you for granted. And if it's played out in a very negative way, um, it can go from not only, the, not only can it be my appreciation and interest can wane, but if unchecked, it can find its way into scorn and disdain. That's the most negative expression. Some of us, I know we've heard this phrase. Some of us have heard this phrase. It's in our language. I hear it all the time. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. I'll hear that phrase thrown around at different times. Usually what someone is saying is that the closer you get, what do they mean by that? What do people mean by that? Usually when someone says familiarity breeds contempt, what they're saying is the closer you get to people, who you, the, the, more, the, the more you lose respect. Why? Because we see flaws. When we see flaws, the less we regard. The more common something becomes, the less special it is. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, the word contempt, that was interesting, because I was talking to my, I was going, man, that's a strong word. I was, remember, I was on a retreat a couple of months ago with my wife, and we were talking, 
And I was telling her about this passage. And I said, you know, Jesus took things that were familiar and opened them up in, in new ways. And then I said, you know, what do you think about that phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. I go, I've used it probably a couple of times, but I go, you know, contempt is a strong word. Hunter, are we saying that the whenever we're, we get close to someone, that over time, inevitably, that relationship will break down and even become ugly? Is that what we're saying? Familiarity breeds contempt? Think about it. It's interesting, because when you go look up the word contempt, it essentially has, it's one definition that goes in two directions. One definition of contempt is like when you hold someone in a scornful place, when you see them as contemptible. You make me, I use it, you make me sick. Contemptible. That's one understanding of contempt. Another definition of contempt is a loss of respect or reverence. That's why in a court of law, you'll hear someone say, uh, you're out of order. You know what? You're going to be held in contempt of court, right? What do they say? You're disrespecting the court. That is really, and if you look up the meaning of, the, of, the, of that phrase, familiarity leads to contempt. It actually has to do with familiarity not leading to you know, disdainful scorn. It has more to do with leads to a place of disrespect because the closer we get to people, the more we see their weak sides. Right? And so we tend, now here's what I think. I do believe this statement. And the more, and more we see their weaknesses and shortcomings, flaws, yes, even sins at times, the more we see that up close and personal, then the less we feel close or respect or care for them. That's what this implied. I believe the first part is true, always. The closer we get to people, we inevitably will see inconsistencies. There's no way. We see flaws. People, <laughs> come on, right? We all know that. There's not one of us doesn't have any flaw and stuff, and, and people who are close to us know that. But I don't think, so the, the former is true, but I'm not sure about the latter. I'm not sure that that necessarily means that because we see someone and their flaws, that automatically that we're going to hold them in contempt. In fact, I recall in my life some of the people that I've most appreciated and gotten close to who were people that I respected in my life. I think of two people, two relationships in particular that stood out to me as having a spiritual influence in my life. One was my, my youth, first youth pastor I ever had, named, guy named, a man named Steve McFarland. And uh, first, I didn't know him, but one summer they welcomed me into their home and I stayed for an entire summer at their, at their house, he and his young wife's house. And I remember what an effect that had on me. Well, I got to see up close and personal a whole lot of stuff. Flaws and all. I remember my grandfather, the close, who was my first and only pastor I ever had in my life. And the closer I got to him, initially I always thought he, of him one way. But as I got older, and I've shared before, but as I got closer to him, I started seeing flaws. I saw areas of, of sometimes inconsistency. I, I, but you know what happened? In neither of those cases did my respect and love diminish necessarily. It just changed. In fact, I ended up becoming more protective, actually, and desirous of helping the situation improve because there was a deeper level of love there that had been built around trust and honesty and real vulnerability. So familiarity in that, for me, did not necessarily breed contempt, but I did see, as many of us do, shortcomings. Now, it was interesting because the idea is that, and this, and this is true, I suppose, that it is possible, clearly, for Familiarity, just stay with me on this, to lead to contempt in a bad way when there's huge disconnects, okay? When we're seeing hypocrisy lived out, 
that will that will tear us. That will that will that can get do real damage. But I think in most cases the real danger of familiarity is that we start to take things that are gifts to us for granted. I do. I think we start to take things that are fascinating, had been before, for granted, because now we're used to them. We get accustomed to it, and they lose their sparkle. That's human nature, you know. I was having this conversation with my wife. I said, so what do you think? Familiarity breeds contempt. She says, you know what? I like to think of it in a different way. I go, really? Like what? She goes, familiarity doesn't breed contempt as much as familiarity can breed content. And I go, oh, very good, very good. I like that. Familiarity breeds content if we do it right. And godliness with contentment is a huge blessing. Great gain, the Bible says. I was thinking about that and also something that's been in the news recently. You've heard it as well. How, who of us have not probably heard about, read about, watched in some way, shape, or form the discussion that's been going around the, the death of uh, Barbara Bush? The kind of the former first lady, um, I guess she's a first lady who was married to George H. W. Bush, the father of W. Bush, and the president's wife, who was an amazing woman in her own right, and people are really honoring her because she died. She died what ninety at ninety think ninety three or two somewhere in there. She okay. The reason I bring it up is because I was saying to my wife, I go, I had heard this news was driving. I go. Hunt, you know what? She, I go, did you know that they were married for 73 years? I go, 73 years. Wow. I go, that's amazing. I go, that's unbelievable. I go, now think of it this way. I go, honey, I go, we, you and I, we have been married, well, this year will be 34 years. I go, but you got to like double that and add five to get 73. I go, can you believe that? That's amazing to me. I go, I go, I can't even, I go, and you know what's interesting is that she, and you want to talk about familiarity. She was talking in, she, many people are going back over some of her better speeches that she, some of the things that she said and talked about and who she was as a woman and the influence she had. And she had a lot of wonderful things she did. One of the things that, that came back up was a speech she gave in 1990 at Wellmsley College. She was talking to a group of achievers who were getting ready to graduate and hit the world. And uh, she started talking to them, and she made a statement. She said, you know what? And it seems so apropos right now. She says, when you get to the end of your life, she says, remember this. She says, you're not going to be thinking, she tells them, you're not going to be thinking at the end of your life, oh, she says, about closing one more deal. Like, no one's going to go, oh, man, I wish I just could close one more deal, right? <laughs> or she says, you're not going to be thinking about um, passing that one more test or the grade you got. Oh, if I just had gotten an A on that, no, no. Right? We're not, we're not thinking about that. It's not, she said it's not going to be about closing a deal, winning one more verdict, one more career notch. She says, no, at the end of the day, she says, if you have the, the benefit of having that end of the day moment, you'll be thinking about 
the time you wish you spent a little bit more with the people you loved. And for us, it's with the Lord and also, of course, she says, your, your husband, your wife, your, your child, your son, your daughter, your, your friend, a friend or two that you really grew to love, your parents. Just at the end of your day, that's what you think about. You don't think about, I wish I could have cut another deal. And Jesus talked about that all the time. Be very careful about misplaced priorities. He talked about it all the time. He says, don't just seek to accumulate treasure in this world. It's a fleeting thing. Can't carry it with you. It doesn't, in the end, it's not about, about anti-achievement. It's just about remembering perspective and priority. And again, I think we get familiar with the things that are treasures, and sometimes we seek too hard after the things that look like treasure, but they're really not. Here, I'll put this up there. We need to be open to new ways of seeing and being so that what has been familiar can take on new life. Just like Jesus tried to get them to see the scripture that they were so familiar with in fresh new ways, we need to be open also to adjustments, don't we? Open to change, open to shifting things around. It's okay to do that. That's why change can be okay. That's why change is okay. You know, it's like we want to have the, the security of familiar, but at the same time, keep, keep it alive. It's, and, it, and it's true. It's, it's even kind of like even what we're doing with things that we've maybe done for a while. Every now and then, it's good to shift things around. Familiar is huge. We live in a culture where pe people don't even see commitment modeled, really, at all. It's, it's like it's a kind of a more of a free agency thing. You go on to a new thing all the time. Keep moving. Keep moving. There's no loyalty going around in either direction these days. And I'm, I'm making a general statement there. But the danger is then we don't ever give ourselves enough time to even have things that are familiar in healthy ways. And the key is it's not discarding familiarity. It's learning how to keep things alive in that familiarity. Right? So, we, so what the Lord is doing is taking old, he, he takes something that is old and he brings life into it in a new way. He takes something that is familiar to them and he brings life into it in a new way. And every now and then we have to do that too. We have to mix things up once in a while. Certainly in our relationship with the Lord from time to time, it's going to mean that we need to mix things up, do something a little bit differently, change it a little bit. Not the big thing, but shifting it around. That's true in any natural relationship as well. Friendship, America, it's just the way it is. It, we can get familiar and then we start to lose what it is, what it is meant to be. And every now and then we need to shift it around. Right? Create a little bit of life flow in there. Open up to a new season of discovery. Not be so stuck in the same way always of doing it, but being open to shifts every now and then. Some of us need to be okay with not jumping just because it, it doesn't feel like it used to feel. That's one. And the others of us need to know how to make, be more attentive to making things stay alive because it just really has to do with shifting some things around. You could argue in, a, in a way, the same thing that we're trying to do in a lot of areas, even in our church life, we're trying to do that right now. Same principle, right? Back to Emmaus, these two friends, they're on the road. Where were they impacted? Where did their real impact come? You know where it came? It came in the conversation with the one that they didn't know was Jesus, but was. It, and it came as they were not just speaking, but actually listening to his words. The real impact came in listening to his words, in reflecting and pondering and wrestling with them. And if you really want to know where things come alive, it's in the conversation. I asked them if they could put this up. When we engage Jesus' conversation, when we pause to listen to him in his words, with his words, we'll find that new things and fresh, he has new things to say to us and fresh places to take us. New revelations to unveil. New treasure to unearth. New beauty for us to behold. 
um, new learning, new growth, the Christian life. Don't let anybody ever say, say the Christian life is like some boring thing, only familiar. It is familiar, but it's treasure new and old. It's, it's about something that, yes, is familiar and sound and trustworthy, but it, it's, if it's done right, it's alive and dynamic and constantly flowing. A new word for a new season of my life, it moves with us. The Lord moves with us all the way through. Every, every detail, every turn, the Lord is with us. There's new things we learn as we, we look in his word. Things come alive in us. Things become words to us. There's so much life in it. It affects everything. It, the presence of the Lord is a beautiful thing. It's like life is familiar, but yet beautiful and new. And, it, and if we're doing it right, it comes alive in multiple ways. Like it burns inside of us. You know, I, I'll put it this way. I've never seen, if it, maybe, maybe this is the best way. It, when we engage Jesus conversationally, and that's, how, that's why spending time in his word is a way of conversation. And I talk to him, I write I always say, listen and read, write, think, write, sing, say. These are the exchanges of relationship. No relationship goes deep without some type of genuine conversation. Real, honest conversation is a key to depth, relational depth. We can't, <laughs> I can't I'm not saying that all the time we have to have a deep conversation, but I'm saying is we can never have one We'll never have depth in this relationship. The depth in the relationship with Jesus comes in real conversation. He, he, their hearts burn inside as they engaged him in conversation. I believe there are words that the Lord has to burn in our hearts for who we are if we will engage him in conversation. He may be doing that right now. Go to verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. We only got a couple verses here. And he acted as if, look at this. He acted as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly saying, no, 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 stay with us. For it was toward evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. Jesus, they're going, look, okay, wow, we've been enjoying this conversation with you. Oh my goodness. Who are you? We feel like we know you, but we don't. He was going to, but here's our place. We're coming to the village. We're coming to Emmaus. We've got to, if I can put it this way, this is where we're going to be staying. This is where we were heading, Emmaus. It's a village. And it says that Jesus, the man, the stranger, acted as if he was going to go further. I'll see you later. It's been great talking with you. Shalom. <laughs> you know, goodbye. And they said, no, 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 no. We would love, look, you know what? It's getting dark. The road ahead, the, night, the day is far spent. It's almost night. Would you, would you do us the honor of coming and staying with us? We have a place. Share, share this with us. I have a room for you. Share this meal. Let's have, let's have dinner together and talk about this. Look what it says. It says, so, we, so he went, you know, you know what the older version says? That he cons they, they constrained him is the word that is used. Like they literally almost said, no, 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 you can't go, right? I think the Lord cannot, you know one thing the Lord cannot resist? Hospitality. He loves hospitality. <laughs> and you got to understand this. Unless we invite the Lord into our lives, how can I put this? Into our hearts, some of us, we've been impressed with Jesus. We love the conversation. It's a fascinating encounter. We don't know. Look, how can I put it? 
until we welcome him into our life, invite him into our home, he will always be to us a stranger. You hear what I'm saying? A fascinating encounter, yes. An interesting and mysterious conversationalist, yes. But a stranger, nonetheless, until we welcome him into our home. He waits to be welcomed. Do we see that? He stands, he says, Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. Will you let me in? It's an interesting thing. The Lord won't force his way into our lives. He won't. He will not kick open the door. He waits for us to open it. No, 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 no. He would have gone further. No, no, no. Stay with us. Okay, I will. See that? It's, and well, that's true how it is for problems, too. Mike, there's probably problems or situations in our life, and the Lord is saying, you know what? Welcome me in. Welcome me into it. I'll go with you. Oh, but you would. It's so bad. It's shameful. I can't. No one can know about. No, no. Bring me. I'll go with you. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll have any conversation. We're going to have a, I'll have the conversation. You just got to want me to come. You let me, you welcome me in, I'll come. But I'm not going to force my way into your life. I'm not going to force you to have me. You got to choose, right? He will, and, I'll, and this will be the last thing we'll put up. But it's, it's another reminder that there is a part of God, you know, it's a part of God who is that, refuses to push himself upon us. And there's a part of God who will only go where he is invited. He waits to be wanted. And it seems like when they brought him in, that they gave him a place of honor. It seems like what happens is they give him, they said, come in, we're going to have dinner together. And they said, we have a table. We have a table. And we want you, oh, we've enjoyed this conversation. So we want you to be at the center of the table. Could you do that? Look at that. They gave him a place of honor. And then something remarkable occurs. They, something that catches us all off guard. Something nobody was expecting. Because then the stranger who was welcomed in and placed in the center of the table, then he does something that would have initially, a couple of hours before, seemed incredibly audacious, but now seems somehow appropriate for the stranger they had welcomed in and invited in as their guest, assumed, assumed the role of a host. Look what it says. When he, was at the ta- when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Do we see it? He who is the guest invited in. Just like this. Someone comes over to your house. You say, hey, I'd love to have you over. You, they come over and then they start telling you what a blessing it is t- for you to be able to be here and have them at, at your own house. <laughs> and uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. You know what? You, why don't you sit over there? And then I'll, you know, I think we're going to have this tonight. Um. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's like he comes in and he the, he, the guest becomes the host. And that's what happens. It's like, wait, wait, you're the guest. No, but not now. When you welcome me in, which you have to choose to do. But then when we welcome the Lord in, he becomes the host. And we're going to see that when he breaks the bread, and we're going to get into this next week, well, as we close it out, there's something powerful in that. A wonderful thing happens right there. He takes the place of the host. He is at the table. He, he, he's the one. The one who is welcomed in becomes the host in the inn, and he breaks the bread and begins to lead them through a meal. It's, a, it's an amazing moment. 
Now, I, I did something we don't usually do. I put a, a prayer in the handout. Wrote it, we wrote it out. It's from the devotional Bible. I'm going to have us do something somewhat daring. I'm going to ask us all to read this out loud together as our closing prayer. And if you can't read the words because they're too tiny, I'm going to have them scroll it up top if they were able to do that, which is fine. But uh, we're, going to sh- we're going to pray this prayer together, connecting with what we've just shared, inviting the Lord to be in our lives too. All right? Okay, here we go. Abide with us, Lord Jesus, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. Abide in our home and in our heart. Open our eyes to see you, our minds to know you, our hearts to give heed to you and your word. Be our companion on the way of life and teach us in the perils of the day and in the darkness of the night to trust in your loving care. Above all, when the evening of our life turns into night, abide with us in that last trial and keep us safe until we see you face to face in the Father's house. Amen.